at the end of the day that we consume wine globally, but the wines are produced locally. And we, we buy into that local nature where we have a local farmer who's been there for many generations. And we, we want to taste also, as you've mentioned, this a product that where there's this form of uh, um, uh, generational knowledge passed on by generation and buying into that that whole idea that this product is part of yeah, a family tradition. And, and, and so for me, the, the hope will be that in a sense, we will find solutions, how to better support the traditional farmer and how we can allow them to remain um, yeah, sustainable over time. In this episode, I'm talking to Etienne Mietling, who is a lecturer and researcher in viticulture. Hi, Etienne, it's so lovely to talk to you. Yeah, hello, Petra, nice to talk to you also, and thank you for this invitation. Yeah, and I love your background, the vineyard. Yeah, thank, yeah, yeah. thank you. I, I, I don't know exactly where this photo was taken, but it gives a, a more um, uh, environmental setting to this Zoom call. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Etienne, now, um, the reason why I contacted you was because I uh, talked to uh, Andre Morgenthal about the Old Vine Project, and you are also, in a way, involved in this project because you're a scientist and you do the research. Yeah, um, as I spoke to you quickly, I I will not say I'm a specialist in Old Vines, um, but looking at my field of research on climate change adaptation, Obviously, I'm drawn to old vines and what old vines can offer to the industry in terms of adaptation, in terms of knowledge. Um, But we can talk about this and I can maybe shed some light about uh, why I'm interested in old vines and and, and what is maybe the value in them when we're talking about a major environmental challenge as uh, climate change. Yeah, I just first want to know your background because um, uh, you grew up in South Africa as well, but you're now in France. So tell me about your your career as a scientist. Yeah, so I studied at Stellenbosch University, as as many people working in the in the wine industry today. I had then the opportunity when I finished my bachelor's degree in in viticulture and enology at end of two thousand and seven to come to France to study a master's degree, which was um, a program that was uh, um, uh, taught in different countries. So extremely interesting because it, as a young student, uh, obviously we're looking for exposure and international experience. And, and we were uh, three forced South Africans that came that year to this program. I then did my master thesis in a research institution in my second year of my master uh, at what we call the the National Institute of Agricultural Research. And at that time, I probably never thought or imagined that I will be working in research, but I was drawn to the way that the French approached uh, the the, the subject of climate change and especially the the subject of uh, um, this link between this complex concept of and the final product and how climate change can uh, impact that that complex notion or or concept. And then from there, I had different opportunities to work in in France uh, to do also my PhD. And then finally, I started to work in the end of 2017 here uh, in the Loire Valley, where I'm currently based, as a lecturer researcher in an agricultural university called École Supérieure d'Agriculture. And I'm also today the head of the master program in viticulture and enology and still continuing to do my research on climate change. So that's more or less in a few words 
it's a nice yeah. yeah it's it's a it's it's a nice i don't know if you know the loire valley but i, I always say uh -huh. underestimated uh, obviously it's the the home country or the the origin of chen and blanc so as a south african i'm, I'm obviously drawn to to, to chen and blanc and uh, mm -hmm. just because of south africa but also because of this uh, this region and what it can offer to chen and blanc but the loire valley has so much more to offer and and and, and that's why i think also I, I enjoy living in this region because there's different styles different uh, regions uh, and and obviously a very interesting region to to also uh, to to work in the academic field because you can show the students different situations in different places where the the grapes are growing well that's interesting um that that you have that that the environment now offers that opportunity for you to do that yeah um, uh, in terms of academic or in terms of science uh, no, no, uh, that you say that you can show the different things um uh, from the environment yeah, from the environment and also from a from a management position i think as um and i i think i was a little bit uh, um naive when i was a young student i think you're studying viticulture and analogy it's obviously important to understand what are the conditions that are required to grow grapes sustainably and how do you produce quality wine um but i think as i've more evolved today as the head of the program and obviously understanding the industry much better. Um, uh, the fact that we have a diverse region with diverse conditions, it allows us to, to, to show also our students different ways of producing wine and how to get the wine to the consumer. I think uh, it's important to understand the management side today of the industry. Uh, I think we can make the best wine uh, possible, but if we don't understand who is our target consumer, then obviously all yeah. that just lost um so yes uh if you have a diverse region like the loire valley you can show different environmental conditions different varieties different styles but at the same time also visit different companies there's different uh, economic uh, uh, models of how grapes are grown and how wine is produced and what are the different consumers and this this yeah this gives the students obviously a much broader uh, perspective from soil to consumer yeah but now, what was it about the environmental um, consciousness that you know that in, in winemaking that attracted you, or how how did you become aware and interested in that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a long process because initially, obviously, we only look at uh, aspects uh, like how how climate is changing, uh, what are the variables that have significantly evolved over time. And what, have, what has been the impact on, on the grapevine or on, on the plant that we are currently cultivating? I think initially what attracted me was, um, I think compared to other industries, the wine industry has always placed a strong focus on authenticity and quality. And this authenticity is obviously strongly related to origin in terms of where the, the, the grapes are grown and and also to the concept of uh, of what plant is is cultivated. Uh, so this notion of authenticity strongly related to origin and variety. And if you think about climate change and the fact that climate is one of the main factors that will uh, determine where we grow grapes and what types of varieties we will plant, we understand that this notion of authenticity is actually extremely sensitive to climate change. So this comes back to this concept of terroir about 
how something creates value, something that creates a strong identity for a grower to use on an international market and especially a market that is extremely competitive. So when I understood how sensitive the industry is to climate change, obviously this led to a, a great curiosity, a scientific curiosity. Uh, and initially in my beginning of my research, we just looked at uh, probably the notion of vulnerability, how climate is changing uh, in terms of exposure. What are the conditions that we that we have been exposed to in the in the past, and what are the possible climate outcomes with the years to come? And then to understand what will be the vulnerability to that exposure, you start to understand the sensitivity of the plant in terms of the variety that you're growing, the rootstock that you're planting, the site where you're growing the grapes. So uh, a sensitive sensitivity from an agronomy perspective. And this then led to the next step. Uh, when you understand what is the, the impacts in the past and the possible impacts in the future, then you start asking the question, what types of adapt adaptations will be required in the future? How can I maintain um, this site to be sustainable? What are the the, the possible measures that I can take in the vineyard or in the cellar to make sure that my, my cultivar or the variety that I'm cultivating will still uh, produce quality grapes and still make a wine that's more or less the style that has always been the style produced in the site. Um, so this started to open a field in terms of adaptation in the vineyards, adaptations in the cellars, uh, but again from a, an agronomy perspective. And I think what, what, what was probably the mistake in the beginning, but probably part of the learning experience is that regardless of how much we, we uh, place in an importance on, on origin and variety, at the end of the day, the resilient nature comes back to the winemaker and the grape grower. And this started to open a new field in terms of resilience, understanding the company and the contextual factors that are defining the, 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 the resilience or the, the vulnerability of the wine grower. Uh, and obviously this has opened a new field now in terms of looking at uh, uh, also what are the other uh, elements that can define the vulnerability and the adaptation of the grape grower in terms of not just the natural or the uh, agronomy features of that winemaker, but also the socio-economic or socio-technical aspects that defines the wine grower in, within its uh, uh, territorial setting. Wow. I mean, this is th there's so many aspects then of what you are looking at. Yeah, it's, I think it's, 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 it's in a way respecting also the, the complex nature of growing grapes. It's easy to talk about climate change, but uh, for any grape grower, um, obviously climate change, uh, we did a study worldwide looking at uh, the perception of climate change uh, among grape growers in 18 worldwide producing countries. We collected more than 3,000 responses from the, the different growers and it confirms that to, maybe compared to the beginning of the year 2000 today, I think uh, uh, the majority of grape growers are aware that climate is changing. There's still a lot of uncertainty regarding how climate will change in the near and far future. But I think currently with the different frost events, the drought in different countries, I think that there's a strong conscience that climate is changing and it's impacting significantly the industry. Not, just, not, not only from a quality perspective, I think the main concern, uh, if you think about sustainability, is the, the impact on volume and production. I think at, at the end of the day, 
um, quality can always be ensured in 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 a, in, a, in a more or less uh, uh, um, a sustainable way. But if is becoming more and more related to the volume of wine produced and which at the end determines uh, the economic viability of any company, uh, regardless of the market where they're selling. Um, but if we look at uh, um, the, the, the perception of the growers, they're all aware. So regardless of this awareness, they still are dealing with issues that are related maybe to uh, the country, to the industry, but also to the market. And, and this becomes an extremely complex uh, subject uh, if you have to think about all these different areas that uh, that the grower is facing. It's easy to talk about changing a variety planting on a new site, uh, but at the end of the day, that has to make economic uh, sense to the grower and you have to understand it within its environment, which is much more complex than just the climate uh, change environment. Um, and I think today... It, it, what we have been trying to do in the last one or two years is trying to say that we want to deal with this uncertainty. Uh, we want to explore uh, or we want to accept the uncertainty. I think it's come to the point that you want to say to the grower, you have to deal with the uncertainty as something that will not change. It will be part of the challenge. And today, looking at, at climate change from a European perspective, this is where South Africa and Australia and Chile and these new World Bank countries has actually been very interesting to, to, to explore and to study. Um, because we have been talking a lot in Europe about uh, what we call the climate um, suitability range for different varieties. If you think about uh, the history of growing grapes in Europe, it's been for many centuries uh, and obviously many of uh, the varieties that we are currently cultivating has become signature varieties. Uh, if we think about the Loire Valley and we think about the dry wines, then Chenin Blanc is part of the DNA, as will be Shira or Shiraz in the Rhone Valley or Tempranillo, Sangiovese in, in Spain and Italy. Um, and today, climate change is challenging the suitability of those traditional varieties. And, and what will be the identity of that regions if we have to change and plant new varieties. And this has led to a lot of questioning, a lot of uncertainty regarding the identity of our products. But then I started to, and probably it's because I'm from South Africa, but if you think about South Africa and Australia and all these new world one countries, which has obviously adopted a lot of the European practices and varieties, but they have adopted those practices and varieties in a climate that is much more hostile to the native regions where those practices uh -huh. are coming from. And this opened the door of addressing this uncertainty. If you are working with a grape grower in the Loire Valley, then South Africa becomes the, the worst climate outcome that the Loire Valley will face in the next 80 or 60 years. South Africa becomes that three or four degree warmer scenario according to the IPCC uh, um, uh, climate scenarios or Australia becomes uh, or let's talk about the Barossa Barossa becomes that uh, climate analogy for a region like their own valley because it's two or three times warmer uh, it, it already cultivates the signature variety of of, um, of uh, um, for instance Bordeaux or their own valley and, and that becomes interesting to explore because it allows the, the grape grower of the European region to look at a region that is possibly the climate outcome of tomorrow, 
and to understand what are the practices that they have implemented uh, and and compared to Europe, which are, which are obviously facing today uh, a significant change in temperature and a shifting pattern in rainfall, those countries in the issue of a few decades had to innovate very quickly to become competitive in, in the market. Uh, um, so they have also generated a lot of innovative practices and techniques. They have done this in the vineyards, they have done this in the cellar. And today, countries like Chile, Australia, South Africa are extremely competitive in the market. So not only have they shown that they can produce quality wine in a much warmer and drier climate, but they have done this also sustainably. Uh, so these new world wine countries, ironically, uh, if you think about climate change, we talk always about this uncharacteristic element about climate change, not just in terms of the fact that it's human driven, but it's also taking place at a much rapid uh, rate compared to previous climate variations in the past. So there's this uncharacteristic uh, nature to climate change, and this obviously leads to a lot of uncertainty. But uncharacteristically, always there's been um, this uh, uh, new world one countries has always learned from old one world one countries and then adopted things and improved them. Uh, especially as there's less regulations and there's more place for innovations. But today, the uncharacteristic event can also be that old, one, old world wine countries will then adopt knowledge and understanding from new world wine countries, which has not been actually something that has been applied in, in, in the past. And this led to this field of research that I'm looking at currently, and again, within the context of resilience, is, um, and this comes to your question about old, old, old vines, is that uh, firstly, what are the planting material that these new world wine countries are currently using? Um, if we think about Chenin Blanc as a variety, it's been uh, cultivated for many years in South Africa. So those vines under different environmental conditions and especially much warmer and drier conditions have undergone genetic variation and has probably led to new clones of Chenin Blanc. Uh, uh, and this obviously has become a great adaptation solution because if the hypothesis is that those clones are much more adapted to drought and, and warm conditions, if we probably bring them back to France, will they then allow us to become more resilient to what is expected for the near future and the far future? And at the same time, it's also a much more cost-effective strategy because you, you're providing to the producer in the Loire Valley another clone of Chenin Blanc, uh, which means that he can relate to that variety. He already knows how to cultivate Chenin Blanc compared to another variety like Simeon, which doesn't have any historical roots in the Loire Valley. So you're providing a much more certain cost-effective strategy to the producer. And at the same time, it's we call it a no regret strategy. It means that it, it, it's an adaptation solution that will not impact the other parameters of, of, of the business in terms of if he will still produce Chenin Blanc, he will still have the same market. He will probably not make the same style of wine because styles, they evolve over time. We, uh, we never The wines we produced in the 70s are not the same wine produced today, and it will not be the same wines that we produce in the next 30 years, not just for climate reasons. I think also... The consumer also evolves in terms of uh, the style of wine that they are looking for. Uh, in our region, in the Loire Valley, which has been a massive movement, have been the movement from sweet wines to dry wines. 
for Chenin Blanc, obviously, because the market is looking more for um, still dry wines that are much more driven by primary aromas than the sweet wines. Uh, um, so, so styles evolve. So this is where South Africa, Australia, Chile has become extremely interesting because um, Chenin Blanc is a historical variety of the Loire Valley, but is today adopted by the South Africans as their own. They call it Stien, and they plant even more uh, uh, hectares of Chenin Blanc than the Loire Valley. So it's a signature variety in South Africa. We can talk the same about Sauvignon Blanc in Chile, uh, which has uh, uh, which has become the main white variety in Chile, or we can talk about Shiraz or uh, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in Australia, which is obviously dominant Cabernet Sauvignon in in uh, Western Australia and Syrah in the South Australia areas. And uh, so all these old uh, these old world wine countries can look today to these new world wine countries as we are looking at uh, 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 practices from old from new world wine countries to old world countries. So this is a very interesting field in terms of building resilience, enhancing the genetic diversity that's already uh, present within a variety, and then providing producers with more sustainable and cost-effective strategies to maintain the variety and then to ensure in, in a certain manner the identity of the wines produced uh, for many centuries. So that's the old vines has become interesting because old vines are almost like old people. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, yeah, I think South Africans, we, we, we grow up like this, and I think it's the same in many countries. But if we have a, a grandfather or a grandmother who has lived various experiences and who has um, been exposed to, yeah, to many challenges and even who has made a lot of mistakes in the past and, and learning from that mistakes, as young, yeah, young people, we always want to learn from them in a sense, not to make the same mistakes and, and to, to make sure that we improve where they maybe, uh, yeah, make, make mistakes. So old vines are in a sense similar um, because grapevines are a perennial plant and there's a perennial nature to grapevines where normally if everything has been done correctly from planting on a, a suitable site and, and and allowing the grapevine to have a balance between growth and production and in a sense to think about uh, uh, cultivating the grapevine almost like running a marathon, not over it uh, or over exhausting it uh, and, and really looking at the objective of growing the grapes for 60, 80, 100 years, then that balanced grapevine over time will re re reward almost the farmer with a, a great consistency because the roots will be deeply developed. The plant has learned from various climate uh, uh, um, conditions in different difficult or different uh, growing seasons, how to to adapt and how to inherently build a, a, almost like a climate smart characteristic. And, and, and if you look at various old vines over the world, and especially those that produce consistently good grapes, they have this inherent characteristic just to, just to know how to respond to different conditions, learning probably from the environment, but also from the grower, how the grower has managed the, the, the vines over time. And this has led to a new field, which is um, a little bit different than genetics. I spoke about genetic uh, mutations just before leading to different clones. But there's this new field of epigenetics opening, opening up. And epigenetics is just, uh, uh, um, yeah, it's a little bit different. They say it's above genetics. And it, uh, it's just a field that, that looks at how does the plant 
actually reacts to different conditions and become climate smart over time to just better activate different genes and, and, and to make sure that the plant is always resilient and consistent over time. I'm not a genetician and obviously it's, uh, I'm, I don't want to go too much in detail, but this field of epigenetics has become very interesting. And this is where old vines have extremely interesting values. Um, if, I, if I think about historically, if we want to select clones for the industry, then we go to old vines and we go look for these uh, um, old vines that have over time uh, um, uh, been tested by in environmental conditions and then obviously uh, shows us different clones that are extremely interesting for the industry. But today, if we think about the old vine projects, if it's in Australia, South Africa, and different new world vine countries where there's this movement towards old vines and where we have provided them and given them value um, to, to ensure that they are not uprooted in those countries where maybe they don't produce as much as new vines, uh, but to give them value. And that's where, for instance, the project in South Africa has been extremely interesting to give value to those old vines. But from an um, agronomy perspective, and especially from, from myself as a French scientist, these old vines in new world vine countries has become extremely interesting uh, in the sense that if they have this inherent characteristic of being much more resilient to drought and, and, and warmer temperatures, and, and can they then be a possible adaptation solution for our uh, vineyards in the Loire Valley or in Bordeaux? Area? So in 2018, there was a, a couple of French uh, scientists that went to explore the old vines in, um, in South Africa, and they focused specifically on Chenin Blanc. Um, and they then brought back a lot of these new planting material to France. So the, the planting material is still in quarantine and it will probably be only planted next year or in two years in a regional vineyard plots in the different regions in France. But the hypothesis is that possibly those clones or that genetic variation that is present in the old vines and that have been brought from these countries where the temperatures are three, four degrees warmer and two times drier, can possibly be a very interesting adaptation solutions. That's where I started to, to, to look at old vines from that perspective and what they can bring to the table. Um, and, and, and now I think today that that's a very interesting field because this has been, been the case with the example of Chenin Blanc. But if we talk about Sauvignon Blanc, we can find very interesting old vines in South Africa and Chile. Uh, we can talk about Cabernet Sauvignon, about Syrah, all these historical varieties of Europe. Um, and again, it comes back to the position of the grape grower and the way that we spoke initially about craftsmanship. Yeah. Uh, the fact that when I am a traditional grape grower, I pass on, like the old vines, generational knowledge from my grandfather and my grandfather uh, my, my father to my son and grape growers normally they function in this generational uh, um, transmission uh, of knowledge because it's also a way of of uh, um, of making sure that the identity of the company is ensured and that we transmit from his from generation to generation this cultural knowledge that uh, that has been obtained and developed um, so again the fact that we would like to maintain the same variety, provide the grower solutions to maintain the same variety, allows them to, to not 
look for additional knowledge because the moment that we introduce a new variety to a new region, uh, there's this challenge that the grower will have to overcome. How do I grow now this, this variety? How do I adapt it to my site to make a, a wine that will reveal the place where I'm growing my grapes? It's easy to, to think about this link between climate and a variety, and obviously for the Loire Valley or Bordeaux varieties from Portugal, Spain makes sense because the conditions are becoming warmer and these varieties will move upward. But the moment that you introduce a variety to a region, there's this confrontation between the technical knowledge that we can easily read in a book, but the practical knowledge is completely different. The fact that you then have to apply that technique or that variety to your region obviously will lead to a new way that you will practice that. that I don't know if this makes sense, but... Uh, yeah. When we are looking at um, the, 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 the difference between technical uh, correctness and practical correctness, this is opposition. Uh, um, uh, any book can talk about different techniques that we can adopt and we can apply if it's in the vineyard or the cellar. But the, the way that we implement that technique leads to the way that we practice it. And the way that we practice it will depend on our type of soil, uh, the, 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 the topography, the, even the elements defining the company in terms of the workforce, the labor. Um, and, and this leads to a, a great additional challenge for growers in the context of climate change. So it comes back to this, this word of sustaining wine identity in a changing climate. If we can allow uh, solutions of maintaining this, the, 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 traditional cultivated or signature variety, then that obviously is a, a great adapta adaptation solution. And then within that context of doing prospective work of planting material in other countries, looking at the hypothesis, if they can enhance resilience, um, we're looking also at practices because obviously uh, when, when we are tasting wines of South Africa, tasting wines of Chile, where we see that they are producing wine that has as good as quality and even better than probably the wines that we are producing currently in a much cooler and wetter climate. Then the question comes, how do they manage the vines? How do they produce it in the cellar? So um, Europe actually has a very interesting advantage is that in the past, we have always said that it's, it's, these new world wine countries uh, have adopted our practices. They have learned from us, and they have uh, then not not made a, a similar practices. But um, Burgundy and Oregon is a good example. They adopted Pinot Noir as a signature variety. They then implemented a similar a geographical indication as in Burgundy, where we have our regional appellation system, then the sub-regional uh, appellations, and then going up the pyramid to much more smaller geographical indications. So the approach is quite similar, but a, a region, um, all these new world one regions actually has great resources in terms of how we can be much more innovative, how we adapt to warmer and drier conditions. Uh, and with the freedom to do a lot of different things because the regulations are much less strict, we can actually, when I say we as Europeans, we can actually learn a lot from those countries. And, and, and I think today, um, if you come back to, I, I spoke a lot, but if you think about the path that, 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 that we have taken in the last 10 years, looking at climate change, it 
actually looked at almost like an impact assessment, as I've mentioned, how climate is changing, how it will change, how sensitive is our site or our grapevine to those changes. That led to this general question about how do we adapt in the vineyard? How do we adapt in the cellar? How can we find solutions that, that just allows us to be less vulnerable to these uh, expected climate outcomes? But then we quickly understood that we are quite limited in this understanding because we look at a, a, a modeling techniques that will tell us more or less what will be the climate of tomorrow. We're only focusing on climate, so that's always a limiting factor because there's so many other parameters that we have to consider. And then what I felt was it was something that was missing maybe was this, this practical nature to this this challenge of adapting the industry to climate change. How can we find practical examples of where practices have been a success and how those practices have then led to quality production? And this is where I felt that uh, um, prospective work is quite interesting because it allows us to associate us with a country that is probably our climate scenario of tomorrow. And this has led to the question about planting material, questioning the value of old vines, and looking at the practices and the, the techniques of grape growers and winemakers in new world wine countries like South Africa. This shows that there are so many um, things to be considered in this, uh, like you say, in this aspect. Um, but if you think of the winemaker and the wine grower and the farmer, when they have to now get this information and start, changing what they've like you said now uh you know the, these generations of farming and making doing it a certain way how do you um get them to understand then that there is this change and that there should be this change um happening in the vineyards yeah similar to my students the mm -hmm. the best class lesson is always uh, in the bottle so starting by tasting wine it allows the, the student or the farmer to objectively taste the wine. So we can do it like in a blind tasting or a little bit more subjectively when we mention what is the name of the region or the, the wine. But by starting by tasting the wine, it allows them to have um, a more, I would say, how can I mention this in, in, in English, but it allows them to, by themselves, to appreciate the product. If they, yeah. And if they like it or if they dislike it, what are the, the aromas or the, the flavors that they are perceiving within that context? So we, we almost do like an exercise that is called tasting climate change. So you take an example of Sauvignon Blanc, for instance. The Loire Valley will, will be the zero degree Celsius uh, uh, wine. And then... The, the wine from Bordeaux will be the one degree warmer wine. Then the wine from the south of France will be the two degree. The Chile wine will be the three degree wine and the South African wine from a warm place in Stellenbosch or, uh, or in, uh, in Swartland, wherever, will be the four degree Celsius wine. So the producer or the student then has the opportunity to first taste the wine in different environmental conditions, appreciating the impact that climate has on the final quality of the product in terms of uh, the sensory attributes, but also the flavor, the balance between the, the acidity and, and, and the overall volume of the, or the, the body of the wine. And by doing that, 
you have the possibility to almost to do a participative uh, um, workshop. Then introducing elements, showing them how the temperatures in the Loire Valley has changed over the last 40 years, that currently today, the Loire Valley has the climate of Bordeaux. Bordeaux has actually the climate of Languedoc historically, and the things are changing. Um, and by appreciating uh, the wine, they then have an understanding about what is the current issue, is that by tasting these wines in different places, wine will obviously continue to change. Styles will continue to change. But by tasting the wine, they appreciate also the quality. They understand that behind the, 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 the variety, behind the place where the grapes are, are, are grown, there's a wine grower, there's a grape grower, someone that is shaping the wine, that is having actually the most important influence, deciding where I grow my grapes, how I blend different sites together, uh, the different practice or the date of harvest, all these elements that at the end of the day show the importance of, of, of the grape grower. And this then leads to the question, um, what are the practices they are, that they are implementing? How do they produce this wine? And not just from, an, uh, from a practical point of view, but also what was the inset costs? What is the price of this bottle? How do they generate value? Uh, who is the market? Again, it's important to contextualize everything within the co context uh, uh, um, because for the French grower, that's a way of understanding what was the, the contextual factors of the South African producer or the Chilean producer and how that relates or relates not to his own situation. And then by adopting that understanding and that knowledge coming from a different scenario, how does that relate to his context? Because if, as a scientist, it's easy to talk about adaptation and we can talk about various possibilities that are uh, uh, viable for, for any producer, regardless of the, 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 yeah, the situation. But if we don't understand uh, the, the contextual situation of the grape grower, then as you've mentioned, then yeah. that will lead to any change. So for, for me as a, as a scientist in the Loire Valley and even as a teacher, um, it's important to to always talk about these contextual factors. Irrigation is a, is a very good example. Irrigation is obviously something that is very much employed in different countries all over the world. But in the Loire Valley, it will, it will probably be a, something that will be difficult to implement. There's so many administrative uh, um, elements uh, that needs to be considered before irrigation one day will be, be a possibility. And even if it becomes administratively possible, uh, we have not the same resources as other countries. Uh, we have a river that's uh, that's normally very dry in the summer. Uh, we don't have a lot of underground water resources. So, um, as a scientist, we I need to understand those contextual factors. So that when I bring knowledge and I bring understanding, what I think is uh, from a good example, that I need to understand what are the 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 practices and the techniques that will actually lead to changes in the vineyards. Um, and then there's other examples which obviously are extremely interesting and that I think the Loire Valley or Bordeaux or what, whatever the region is that we are working with, uh, where we can find extremely interesting values. But now, if, if you think of it, um, the originally the wines that now grow in South Africa um, originally came from Europe. Yes. Yeah. So they have also from the European conditions, they have also adapted 
um, and and the wine, uh, the the the, uh, the farmers and the winemakers have adapted uh, to that. So, what would be then would the wines that or would the vineyards that are now in Europe not automatically or or organically uh, adapt to the new change and the, the new change in temperature? Um, yeah, so if yeah. I understand correctly, just yeah. I understand your, uh, as, as in South Africa, as we, yeah, at the end of the day, the vineyards are um, domesticated. So it comes back to this selection process. Um, the growers, they will select uh, uh, vines that are much more resilient. So they look at uh, quality indicators, uh, not just the quality indicators in the berry and the, the quality that they have at harvest, but also those that are less sensitive to diseases, those that produce more yield. So domestically, um, there's always been the selection process, eliminating uh, individuals that are not performing and then selecting individuals that are outperforming the others. Uh, the, what happened was, um, and this is probably one point that is important to discuss and which explains also a form of vulnerability that is very present in, in France, and I think uh, which has been misunderstood, is that in the in the last, I think it was in the year 60s, 70s, I don't know exactly, but we started to identify individuals as clones, uh, individual vineyards, uh, individual vines as clones, and this led to a big program called clonal selection, which is still currently today uh, present. It allows us to understand uh, the individuals from an uh, agronomy perspective, what are the attributes, and, and, and then providing those clones to the industry as, at large. And then nurseries can multiply them, they can sell them. The problem with this clonal selection um, was that we started to only focus on a few clones and we only planted those clones. And if you think about uh, uh, risk management. Risk management is all about spreading the risks and, and trying to, um, to reduce uh, any vulnerability that we have. Because at the end of the day, it's nice to talk about climate change, but climate variability is still very strong. We knew last year a very wet and a very cool year. And if we only plan for one climate outcome, then we will always be vulnerable. Vulnerable. Uh, um, uh, one of the big uh, um, uh, elements of being resilient is about diversifying uh, practices, diversifying activities. And even within the grapevine, we have to diversify. So one big mistake that the, I would say the industry has made in France, and I can give the example of Chenin Blanc in the Loire Valley, we have about five clones that dominate more than 90% of our vineyards planted in the Loire Valley. So the, currently today, we have about 440 clones of Chenin Blanc available, but only five of them are dominating the majority of vineyards planted. So it shows that, that we have moved away from something where we were extremely diversified. There was no knowledge at the time of uh, different clones. We did what we call mass selection. We identified different individuals that were outperforming other individuals, and we multiplied them and we planted them. And today, mass selection is still something that is done by mostly by private nurses, private estates, uh, private estates. Um, but clonal selection actually is still in the same sense 
provides the same solution. The only difference is now we know what other individuals we're selecting. Uh, and, and this is where the Portuguese has been very interesting. They have this concept called polyclonal, uh, and where they have to plant at least six different clones of the same variety to have this definition of polyclonal diversity. And they do it in the same vineyards, or they spread their clones on different sites. And by spreading it, they spread actually the risk. Into, when there's a frost event or a drought event, then obviously those clones will perform differently. So one of the main issues today is to convince and to show growers that already they have a rich diversity within, as you've mentioned, within the in, within Chenin Blanc already, already in the Loire Valley, because we've been cultivating this variety for many centuries, as you've mentioned, there's a great diversity of genetic material within Chenin Blanc. And I've mentioned to you that for Chenin Blanc, I know specifically there's 440 different clones, uh, but Pinot Noir, I know that the, the Chamber of Agriculture in the uh, Burgundy region, they planted a Pinot Noir clone block of 800 different clones. So there's a lot of genetic variability within the current varieties already in Europe, but I still think that there can be some limitations to those clones. And that's where I think prospecting planting material in other countries is interesting just to increase the genetic variability and to enhance the resilience of the varieties to possible uh, climate outcomes in the future. Because the, the, the only problem we have is that um, if there's no mitigate, mitigate, mitigative efforts by governments, and if we can't reduce drastically the way that we are currently living in this world, then there is this big possibility that we're moving towards a world that will be much warmer and much drier for many regions or much warmer and wetter uh, than we have known historically. There's still some re uh, uh, past years that we can say will be similar to what we can expect in the near and the med medium future. Uh, but in the long term, if we look at the end of the century and if we look at the most um, pessimistic scenarios, and especially what we call the, 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 the emission scenario where there's no human efforts to reduce uh, uh, the environmental impacts, then we're moving towards a world that will be extremely uncharacteristic, where there's no historical re uh, year that corresponds to what we can expect. And that's why. I think we need to look at other planting uh, material coming from countries like South Africa just to have a proactive approach to, to climate change adaptation and to prepare for something that is uncharacteristic, very different, and to have that resource available uh, in, in the region in the case of that event. Well, um, I've spoken to a few winemakers in South Africa now, and it seems to be that they are very much aware of also, um, or to farm organically, you know, to, to try and prevent pesticides, for example, and plant things in the vineyards so that the, it's a natural habitat there, that they plant something that brings another insect that eats another insect, that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, it, it, but I want to know now how open are the farmers? Because, of course, doing that alongside of looking after your vineyard and and having all that expenses to even then say, well, now you have to start planting this or you have to now change this. And like you say now, 
adding things to your vineyard. Uh, are they open to this? They are open to that if it makes economically sense. It's, yeah. It has to be uh, not only um, will adaptation lead to additional costs, but also, as I've mentioned, new knowledge. You have to practice that new technique and, and you have to understand it. So if, if we want to work with grape growers and winemakers, regardless of the country, then that producer has to see the profit of the economic profit of that new practice. It's either because the practice will allow him to produce more consistently higher yields or greater quality, something that can be a, a re, uh, that can um, uh, uh, yield a, re a reward at the end. If it's for a grape grower that sells to a, a cooperative or a, or someone that is uh, uh, using his grapes or the winemaker using that grapes, they have to see the value in that adaptation. So that's one of the elements that are important. And, and, and I was now recently in South Africa and, and, I, and I think I understood it even better because it comes back to this global perspective from soil to consumer. If we understand who is the final consumer of that specific grapes, then obviously we understand how to look for solutions that can be of, of greater economic value to the producer. And that will lead to something that is convincing for him because if, if he is dealing with uncertainty, but we can show him the economic certainty of that uh, strategy or that solution, then I think it's a first step to, towards making the, the producer or the grower less vulnerable, vulnerable and more resilient to any climate outcome. If it's the natural variability of any given growing season or expected uh, uh, um, warming that will take place over the next few years. And what you talked about organic is interesting. I think the other challenge today, in addition to all the challenges that we have spoken about, is how do we find synergy? How do we find trade-offs between adapting to expected impacts, but at the same time also mitigating our own impacts on the environment? So organic farming is obviously, um, and I don't want to, to say that I'm against, but organic farming from a certain perspective is just looking at how, we, how do we farm organically by reducing our pesticides and our herbicides. And, and, and it's, it's almost a, just looking at from one side. I think today there's a new, um, a new uh, way of producing that's looking more about as you've mentioned, more doing it regeneratively, looking at the, the economic or the circular economy that I can generate within my farm. How can I um, uh, better use cover crops to enhance the, the, the carbon that will be uh, sequestrated in the soil that will lead to better water infiltration during the winter months? Or for instance, in our region, we have a lot of rain still in the summer and even in the spring. How can I even introduce uh, uh, animals and that will also lead to more fertilization uh, 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 that's natural and using this this economic economy or circular economy system mm -hmm. the end of the day is also a, a great reward because by using um, natural fertilization through the animals that obviously reduces the amount of uh, fertilization or um, organic matter that needs to be implemented into the farm and, and brought in maybe by by other companies or even using them to 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 manage the cover crops and uh, today I think organic farming has its limits um, and, and especially if we think about 
climate mitigation because what maybe can work in one situation, like in a Mediterranean climate, where the disease pressure is, is maybe a little bit less uh, important than other regions, and very important in a Mediterranean climate is that rainfall is mainly in the winter. So they have other issues. They have issues in terms of drought. How do they manage the amount of soil water that is available for the vineyards in the dry summers? So they have to manage the winter rainfall in the winter. But in an oceanic climate like Champagne, Bordeaux, um, the Loire Valley, you're in Austria, you, it's much more continental. They have a lot of uh, rainfall in the summer. And, and if you think about organic farming is that uh, the problem with organic products is that they are normally washed away when rainfall totals are above 10 or 15 millimeters. So when you're exposed to an extremely wet, an extremely uh, yeah, wet year with a high disease pressure, like France knew in 2021, then that organic farmer has to go in the vineyards probably two times more than a conventional farmer to, uh, um, to protect the, the vines against diseases. So while it's using organic products, it's using a lot of copper. So there's the issue of uh, the copper uh, um, uh, pollution on the soil. And at the same time, that farmer is using his tractor two times more. So the lifetime of the tractor two times less, and it's using two times more uh, fuel. So the carbon footprint of that, that uh, activity is much higher. So... The, the risk always with adaptation is that we can adapt towards one uh, a possible outcome that seems extremely interesting in terms of reducing uh, um, our tannery or the, the chemical products for, 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 for managing diseases or the herbicides that we will use. But at the same time, if we look at the global carbon footprint, then in that wet year, in that difficult year, then the organic farming is actually not beneficial for mitigating our impacts. Um, so you have to find a balance. And I'm not saying that uh, producers who are today organically farming are not going in the right direction. I just feel it's it's still not enough. There still needs to be, uh, I think it, it comes back to the notion of flexibility and robustness. We talked, we talked about clonal selection uh, and multiple clones giving that flexibility in the same sense, when we are producing grapes and we are making wine, don't want to be uh, constrained by one philosophy, not allowing us that flexibility. Uh, I think uh, today we have to move towards something that is extremely flexible. Uh, how can we quickly adjust? How can we quickly absorb a specific impact? But at the same time, that flexibility should also lead to transformation. And, and, and we're talking now a lot about uh, agricultural practices, organic farming, but the same applies to the market. I think today, when we want to be much more resilient to climate, we also have to diversify our products, diversify the markets where we sell, so that there is this flexibility. And I think COVID showed us a little bit how one event can extremely impact uh, the supply chain of a company. I think a lot of companies in COVID understood the importance of diversifying the activities. A lot went on and started to do e-commerce. Uh, this people that try to sell more uh, um, in the international market or more in, uh, in the domestic market. So this flexibility that almost became extremely important to survive in COVID is the same that probably applies to, co to climate change, finding solutions 
to be robust? How can I absorb something? How can I adapt? But if that is not enough, how can flexibility uh, allow me to even transform my, 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 my business? And this applies to the vineyard. I think today we have to look at solutions that increases the flexibility nature of growing grapes, making wine. And this, and there's a lot of things that we can talk about. So uh, a close selection, uh, different sites, um, different practices. And then obviously talking about organic farming, I think it's you have to look at what can be the best possible out, um, strategies that we can apply so that we can be as flexible as possible. Mm-hmm. But now when you talk about climate change and, and you talk about the temperatures and, you know, the, the different uh, ways of farming, but now we have also different soil in Europe than, than in South Africa. Um, how will the wines, how will the, the vineyards then have to um, uh, adapt to that? Or, or what, would, what do you think would be the change in the, in the taste if it's suddenly these, uh, the temperatures, but, but also then the soil is different? Yeah, it's a difficult and complex question. Firstly, um, Climate, from a climate perspective, soil is extremely important because you can have the direct impacts of air temperature, rainfall, that obviously impacts the way that the vine is performing and behaving, but the soil has this indirect uh, influence on water and nutrient uh, availability. And, and again, I think water here is key. Uh, uh, humidity in the soil will obviously become extremely important because um, Despite uh, in many uh, in Mediterranean climates, we know it's becoming drier. In extremely wet regional climates, like in uh, the north of France or Germany, and I don't know for Austria, but we know it's becoming a little bit wetter, especially the winter period. But in many regions, there's not a significant change in, in rainfall patterns in the sense that the, we still have the same amount that is falling. Probably they are spread differently over but the same amount is still falling. Um, but the problem is the increase in temperature because this leads to a higher demand of the plant in terms of trans- transpiration, water that is used. And this then leads to less water in the soil available. And even if the soil is not covered by a cover crop, there's also a lot of evapotranspiration. So we know one of the challenges moving forward will be how to better manage and kept water rainfall when it takes place and how do we manage that amount of rainfall over the years or over the growing season because at the end of the day as you've mentioned water will then a nutrient availability will impact uh, the production in terms of volume but also in terms of the quality of the grapes and how that will then translate into the sensory attributes of the wine um, and that's a uh, so for, for me, one of the things that are interesting and that is becoming more and more relevant in Europe, a little bit less maybe in South Africa or Australia, because there's still this room of, uh, of um, liberty or freedom where we can plant wherever we want to plant. So obviously, countries like Argentina, we're moving more and more uh, upwards in Andes, and we're looking for sites that have maybe better water holding capacities, with this more available water resources. But in Europe, we're bounded by these boundaries of traditional regions. And we can't really go outside them. And um, so one of the issues that are, that when we come back to this uh, sensitivity of origin is that 
Will the growing sites that has been traditionally adapted to producing quality wine in the past still be the good producing sites in the future? And with that goes also the fact that if we can't produce on the same sites in the future, what will happen to the traditional farmer that's been farming on that land for many centuries? Uh, uh, so that's that's a first concern because I take the example of the Loire Valley. Historically, because we're on the northern latitude of where traditionally grapes could be produced, and especially a variety like Chenin Blanc, this was the northern limit for, for growing Chenin Blanc, uh, growers selected sites that south face uh, facing the south, uh, so warm sites, self-exposed uh, on steep slopes. And because of this, the steepness of the slopes, it was also slopes that it was eroded quite well and didn't have very deep soil, so less water holding capacity. And these conditions were extremely favorable to allow an early onset of of the growing cycle in the beginning of the spring to have a long growing cycle over the, the growing season and then allowing the grapes to reach full ripeness towards the end of September, beginning of October. It's more or less, if I can say mm -hmm. a few words. But these sites, so self-exposed, um, shallow soils, not deeper than 50, 60 centimeters, a low water, hold, low water holding capacity of let's say 50, 50 or 40 millimeters maximum, um, actually becoming extremely vulnerable because if we have less water in the summer, higher temperatures, um, no possibility to irrigate, then these sites will obviously become uh, less and less productive and we are seeing it. We are seeing yields that are extremely low, not higher than two, three tons per hectare. So in, in our terms, that will be maybe 23, hectoliters per hectare. Um, and if that product is on a position where they are selling maybe for five to 10, maximum 15 euros a bottle, then that becomes difficult in terms of the yield and the input costs and then what the, the farmer will have. Mm -hmm. uh, so on that side, obviously, that's where we are seeing immediately where growers are adapting as quick as possible to capture humidity. Because as you've mentioned, the impact is not just on yield, but also on the sensory attributes. You can have problems of reaching correct sugar ripeness levels. The acidity is very low. That leads to unbalanced wines. And I think today, regardless of the category where we are selling wine today, there's such a high importance on quality. I think we can't be a player on the market if we don't at least have a product that is Quality, quality, there's, a, there's a form of quality attached to the product. There's a balance in the wine. If it's a wine selling at 5, 10 or 15 euros, I think there's today this importance because there's so many products available. There's so many people making wine, so many countries that can sell wine at, at low prices. And, and technology obviously helps these wines to be technologically correct. Uh, so a traditional farmer today exposed to those difficult conditions have to make sure that the wines are at least balanced. So there's a, there's a balance between the amount of sugar that is available, the acidity, the pH, and how that will then translate to the structure of the wine. But will we drink differently then? I mean, will we, will we, I think we yeah I think I think we are choosing differently already it depends on the type of consumer I think the educated consumer today are looking at um wines that reveal more and more sight I think this notion of sight has become extremely interesting and 
how places uh, needs to be translated in the wine that we're tasting, telling that story about that site, that mountain, that that vineyard exposure to maybe the ocean influence or the type of soil, as you've mentioned, that even if it's scientifically impossible to show the link between a limestone soil and the final quality, uh, um, this, yeah, this definitely influences that sites will have, uh, especially soil conditions on final wine. So I think, yes, the educated consumer has moved towards today this pure that they want to taste, looking at how the site conditions translate on the primary aromas that are available and present. And I think at the same time, that, is, that has become an extremely interesting marketing tool for the grower because each person can then find value in, in, in its own uniqueness and the way that they differentiate on the market because they have a site that is combined with a specific climate, combined with a specific practice that gives them that uniqueness. Uh, so the educated consumer is definitely tasting wine differently and with, uh, yeah, the, the impacts of climate change, they will probably be, yeah, a lot of significant uh, consequences because it's, if we find a product that is no longer expressing the site the way educated consumer has come to know that site, challenge is how do we convince them that this still is a wine that is unique and translate that that place so i think the educated consumer will have this expectancy that when I'm tasting a pinot noir from Vosnia, romani or, or or from yeah these significant sites or if i'm taking a tasting a wine from a specific place in let's say Bangkok in stanobos then they have a, a form of uh, a conceptual idea that this is what I want to taste in this wine because this site normally should produce this style of wine. So the the the, the challenge for the um, I would say these iconic wines is how do they maintain the market identity that has been now constructed over the years that are expressing a specific site. And then on the other side, I think more general consumer will always place importance on price. I think regardless of how much we talk about uh, their awareness uh, of the environmental issues and uh, the fact that they're looking today at organic labels or uh, labels that are even promoting social uh, um, yeah. uh, ethical, um, uh, uh, we call this sustainability, yeah. Um, I think, still think at the end of the day, the first priority will always be price. So this comes back to price equals, uh, uh, they still will expect quality for that price. Um, and then obviously behind that, to make that type of wine for that price category, then technology becomes important. How do we use technology? How do we adapt quickly? How do we um, plant our vineyards so that the input costs are not too high? And at the same time, have the yield that is available. And this is where uh, sites that has been uh, that are currently, um, and I think this is a. I think Spain is already facing this problem. A region like Jerez, um, where Palomino grapes are selling for less than one euro per kilo, shows that how do we promote um, uh, good environmental practices when the grapes are selling for less than one euro per kilogram? Uh, how do we convince that grower that? So the challenge will be probably for traditional areas, traditional sites where yields are becoming less and less and where there's not a lot of solutions, where even irrigation starts becoming difficult to maintain a certain yield for that input costs. 
Then there's the question about that will probably be asked if you of if grapevines or viticulture will still be the activity that's practiced in that region. Uh, and then we get to this this question mark about uh, where will be the, the 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 limit where we can uh, still justify planting grapes or planting uh, vines, uh, and what will be the possible other crops that will be, make sense for that farmer to to remain economically sustainable. Well, I think that is a difficult thing because I think there's there's also this cultural aspect attached to the wine and to the um, to the farms and to the the area. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. I think so for, I think many, yeah. Yeah, for these generations where a farm was passed down from father to son, now suddenly to say, well, you know, this is not viable anymore. I think this mm-hmm. would be the difficult part. Yeah, and, and it's always difficult also for the new generation because they are faced maybe with questions that my father and my grandfather, they have normally worked this land and they they reap the rewards. Why can't I do the same? Yeah. So that's why it's important to come back also to protecting the environment because sustainability is not just about making sure that your company is economically viable, but also plan for future generations and how you you manage the land so that you don't exhaust it or you don't uh, um, you don't uh, make it so poor that the next generation can't use it. Um, but I think in some cases probably um, we have there will be changes uh, and, and obviously regions uh, that are facing those those changes will be northern parts of 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 southern of the southern hemisphere. Um, uh, let's take South Africa, like the Olifants River, those places that are almost at the northern limit where, 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 where conditions are becoming extremely dry and extremely warm, or in the south of Europe, like in the south of Spain, where it's very difficult to, to justify the amount of input costs for the amount of yield that is currently available. Well, Etienne, this is so uh, insightful and so interesting. And uh, of course, you know, it's uh, as wine drinkers, I think it's also our responsibility to understand this more and uh, to understand what we pay for, you know, when we buy this bottle of wine, that it's not just um, uh, just the wine, but that it's this whole story behind it, what goes into this bottle. Yeah, I, I like, like what was mentioned for the old wines in that uh, buy a label that justify also the value of that old wines the same is true for climate change. There's obviously an opportunity here by using UNO tourism practices and by maybe promoting um, better through our communication channels. Um, climate change can also be an opportunity to talk about the practices and the techniques that we are applying uh, and how we are protecting the biodiversity, how we are enhancing our resilience to climate change. And then hopefully that then translates to a consumer that will be willing to pay more for the product because they buy into uh, um, this importance of mitigating climate change uh, impacts. Um, But uh, again, uh, if we talk about art and we talk about wine, um, what I enjoy the most, and this is not just about climate change, is this craftsman nature about any grower uh, and this resilient nature that any grower have. And you just mentioned this, this, at the end of the day, that farmer has historically always produce grapes and how, in a sense, they will try everything to survive. And, and I recently read this uh, this 
the story and this shows how much the wine grower is resilient towards uh, i would say extreme climate conditions um so lanzarote is obviously an, an an island where there's extremely dry conditions they probably have 100 to 150 millimeters of rain uh throughout the the the, the year and and all of those that rainfall will probably take place in the winter they have very warm conditions and then you talked about soil they have volcanic soils that are very poor in, in terms of water holding retention. Um, but in that island, in, a, in addition to already the, the unique practices that they have where they, uh, they have these walls that protect the vines against the winds or the fact that they make this almost like a hole where the plants are planted so that they kept the, the morning mists that come from the Atlantic Ocean and then provides the plant with humidity. Mm. In, to already those yeah, very different practices and the way that they adapted to their extreme conditions. The one company, it's called El Grifo, they now also reinversed the cycle of the vine. They pruned the vines much sooner because they don't have any winter rest in the sense that the conditions are always warm in the winter. So there's not the concept of dormancy that takes place naturally in the grapevine. So they prune the vines within leads to a signal, a hormonal signal to the vine that then allows the vine to go into winter rest and then leads to a new growing season. So they just prune the vines three or four months sooner and making sure that the cycle is then inversed. Instead of harvesting the grapes in Northern Hemisphere, traditionally what we do end of August, end of September, where the growing season is from April to, to that time, they prune the vines even sooner so that now the growing season is taking place over the winter months. So it starts probably now October. Mm -hmm. They then have the cool temperatures and the wind and the rainfall of the winter months in November, December, January. And they harvested now the grapes in April. So they return to almost a normal cycle with normal conditions. They harvested. Uh, so this was the first harvest in Europe, in the history of Europe. That took place in the month of April. So at the same time that we harvest now grapes in the southern hemisphere, they harvested the grapes in the northern hemisphere. This shows, in a sense, we come back to these climate analogies. These regions show us that despite, yeah, there will be great challenges ahead of us, but it also shows us that there's still a lot of solutions, a lot of ways of finding uh, um, uh, techniques that can make us uh, uh, more resilient, can uh, overcome the challenges that climate will, will, will ask us, will question us. And, and in a sense, also show us how they seize an opportunity because by doing this, they create awareness. As a scientist, I'm now interested to know more about them. As a consumer, they create a product. They are the first wine in Europe made. Yeah. So there's an opportunity also to seize climate change and to create a form of uniqueness, a form of distinction about how we are implementing practices, how we are promoting more uh, uh, environmental sound practices. Um, so climate change should not just be seen as a risk, but also a way of separating ourselves, differentiating ourselves, and, and making sure that everything makes sense and that we promote something that is quite unique. And they will probably be now more experimenting as well. And yeah, if, if it's uh, yeah, from, from an industry perspective, but you have a lot of companies, and this comes, and this is the type of uh, company that always interests in scientists, uh, those that are innovative, those that are yeah. experimenting by themselves, 
Um, so you, you are from South Africa originally, uh, and and someone like Ibn Saudi obviously comes quickly to mind, someone who has been planting different varieties in different places, is just be proactive. And, and I think that the, the, the grower that will be prepared for the future will be the one that's proactive, anticipating an event. Uh, frost, uh, uh, today, if you look at the France, we have had now two successive frost events. Uh, and today, I think frost with climate change is becoming part of the everyday challenge. We have to be proactive. How do we uh, prepare the vines for a possible frost event? Um, so yes, companies are investing in uh, in, in more uh, experiments. Uh, experiments. They want to be proactive and look at how does those techniques apply to their to their context. Mm -hmm. But now, what is your wish for the future? Um, I wish for the future. Uh, uh, I think, yeah, it's it's in, impossible to to think that climate change will not impact the industry. Uh, it's I think it's a strong reality. Um, regardless of how much mitigation will take place, there will be still continuous changes, and they will still impact the the, the future. I think my as any person growing up in the industry and especially learning. Uh, in the industry, I think we've always placed great value on the traditional farmer. I think for me, the wishful, the wish probably, and the, the thing that I would like to to really um, hope that will take place is that the, the traditional farmer will not disappear. And there's a great challenge, a diff, um, there's a, a, a immense risk for that because um, Companies maybe will start buying in regions. They probably have more diversified activities that so they can also support the impact that takes place when there's a frost event or a drought. And these big companies can then diversify the impact and then make sure that the company still makes sense. But the traditional farmer only has that farm. He only has his five or 10 hectares. And if you're from Austria, that's even smaller. That's one or two hectares. Uh, and I think we have come to like the industry because... At the end of the day, that we consume wine globally, but the wines are produced locally. And we we buy into that local nature where we have a local farmer who's been there for many generations. And we, we want to taste also, as you've mentioned, this a product that where there's this form of uh, um, uh, generational knowledge passed on by generation and buying into that that whole idea that this product is part of yeah, a family tradition and, and, and so for me, the, the hope will be that, in a sense, we will find solutions, how to better support the traditional farmer and how we can allow them to remain um, sustainable over time. The, 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 the identity that we have uh, today about Bordeaux, about uh, different regions all over the world, has been fundamentally constructed by traditional farmers and, that, uh, and, and they are at the risk of disappearing. Uh, and they will probably go elsewhere. But what will happen if they disappear? Because that collective um, notion was present. Because they, when growers are small, they have no choice but to work collectively together to build the image of the, the brand of the, of the region. Um, if, if I only have five hectares, then I can never be a global brand uh, in a short time of space. I need collectively to work with other growers to, to almost move towards this, this collective brand where the region is more important than myself. 
And I think today many regions benefit from that collective marketing that took place, uh, growers collectively working together and sharing good ideas and saying, uh, learn from me because I did this, or I learned from you because I, you did this. Um, what will happen if it's the region is only uh, compiled of individual companies that are big brands, big companies? And I think that collective notion will probably disappear. Uh, and then they are the risk is that the traditional farmer will disappear. Well, that would be very tragic. Who, who at the end of the day is the, the better craftsman, yeah, who, the art? The artist of any region because they shape the land. Yeah. Big companies, what is the potential of that land? Because they buy into the idea of the smaller producer, they just make it much more um, uh, uh, substantial. Um, so, yeah, we, we need the small producers, and, and they are actually the people that will uh, reveal that land to, to, for future generations. Yeah, and I think they are also the heart and soul, you know, of the. Um, of the community and they are so invested personally invested and emotionally invested in what they do so that that would also make a difference yeah for sure etienne this was so lovely to talk to you and uh but i'm going to ask you now to uh i ask everybody to do a shout out for their favorite restaurants but i'm going to ask you to do a shout out for your favorite winery my favorite winery yeah. <laughs> what what do you what do you it's mean? like Normally asking me what's my fa- favorite variety um oh, <laughs> I, 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 favorite uh, winery it's difficult to say because it's maybe because i'm a teacher so i am very neutral <laughs> i never promote uh, something more okay. than other we, we try to to tell our students to be um as open as possible but yeah um no it will be difficult to say favorite okay, then you have to and then you have to to say what's your favorite restaurant or coffee shop. Ah, is that easier? It's it's also difficult because <laughs> obviously we go to different places. <laughs> um, now it will be difficult. Because, yeah, I can't actually. You can't say. Okay, it will be difficult. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm a very I'm a very easy man when it comes to food. So um, oh, it's it? okay. actually good for me. Okay, but now, but what is your favorite wine variety of wine to drink? Do um, yeah, I, I, I think you've listened to the. I'm obviously, if, um, I like the versatility that Chenin Blanc offers. Um, yeah. Obviously, Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc as a wide variety also offers that versatility. Uh, but yeah, I think Chenin Blanc has become a variety that I extremely enjoy. Um, and again, it comes back. It's not an easy variety to cultivate, and that's probably why I more value into Shinnan because I also value the the way that the growers cultivated the vine and how they produce the wine. Um, uh, so Shinnan Blanc probably from a white variety perspective, and and then from a red variety perspective. Um, Yes, uh, I'm, um, and it's, it's interesting because you hear this a lot where people compare Chenin Blanc to Rhone varieties. But when I when I I think I, I have a more preference for Rhone varieties, Grenache or Syrah, in terms of red varietals, um, because I think, and even since so, I think that Chenin Blanc offers something that is a little bit more Mediterranean. And even the Loire Valley, it's not to say it's Mediterranean, but um, the Loire Valley, by the fact that it has such shallow soils, of, 
actually leads to less water availability in the summer and in a sense creates this Mediterranean condition for vines. And, and, and I think that's why Chinon Blanc is so well suited in the Loire Valley and why it actually worked so well in South Africa. Uh, but definitely yeah, all Mediterranean varieties is something that I enjoy. And it's probably because I come from South Africa where the Cape region is dominantly a Mediterranean climate. Uh, so yeah, uh, Chenin Blanc and then I would say Grenache as a red variety. Okay. Well, um, then I, I uh, wish you all the best for this great work that you're doing and um, very interesting work that you're doing. And, um, and I'm sure more and more will be revealed as you carry on with your re research. Thank you so much for your time and for explaining all this to me. Thank you, Petra, for the opportunity. And, and I, I hope 